0: I'm uh, Chris Pryor, I'm the husband of Ellen, but in addition to that my claim to fame in this church is on Monday nights I have the privilege of leading, with Ellen and with the caustics, an intergenerational Bible study. Uh, we have about 14 or so uh, people who turn up every week and we get the opportunity to um, Spend time together and go through God's Word, which at the moment is the Gospel of Luke. Um, in addition to such things for employment, uh, I work uh, across a few schools. Um, in fact, the group that I work with, have, uh, which is Christian Education National, have 17 schools in Victoria, very local schools of uh, Mountain District and um, Maranatha being among them. And then, in addition to that, if that's not enough, uh, I teach in the tertiary space. Um, I I teach around Christian philosophy of education, um, uh, leadership, um, worldview, all sorts of things like that. So uh, I hope you get an understanding that um, I I have a few things that are on the go at at, at any one time, but um, it's certainly enjoyable. Um, to be engaged in such things. So um, let me just uh, organise my notes. You would think that I would do this before I actually come up because that would be a logical thing to do, but uh, when I opened it up just then, I thought, hmm, that's an interesting order. Um <laughs> May I say to you that uh, I am using technology today, which is, I've I've noticed Jerome does this thing where he he does something up here and uh, it seems to be fairly impressive and I'll see if it works for me. Um, To today's text, uh, let me just organise myself a little bit better than what I am. So, We'll see how we go as we go through, is to see if, uh, if it's all there. Uh, last week, we know that um, former Maranatha Arthur Christian School student um, Jerome Dias uh, was talking to us about the Building Up series, and we started with Nehemiah 1. Uh, in this chapter, we were introduced to Nehemiah, who we were told towards then there was a cup, well, at the start, he was a cupbearer. He worked for King Artaxerxes. Um, And after receiving a report from his brother and uh, some contemporaries of his brother, he becomes downcast uh, and upset, and he prays. Uh, For four months, we hear he's in this period of of prayer and contemplation. And after this time, um, he goes before the king, and instead of doing what you should do is Just be happy within the king and reminding the leader that you're with how wonderful they are. He goes to him a little bit sad and in his presence, uh, he tells him of the story that he has. Um, And the king allows him to go, which is a wonderful thing. Yeah, these notes really are messed up. Here we go. So to our text. Oh, before I get too carried away with today's text, may I say um, because we have a tendency as people to focus ourselves on what this message means for us before actually looking at the passage itself, I will first have a look at the passage, and then I'll go a little bit broader than that. And lastly, I will have a look at what this means for us today. So a text unusually, I would say, begins with three days of rest. Uh, This may seem a little bit odd, but if we were to think about this, we know that uh, Nehemiah has just travelled a very long journey. If you have a look at the map, he's gone all the way from uh, Susa, to Jerusalem and this is a journey of over 1,000 kilometres. Understandably, he doesn't have a fast train or anything like that. It does take time to do such things. If you have your Bible in front of you, that would be helpful as I do go through. Um, The second uh, thing that we are told within uh, the text from verse 12, and it's obviously a very important point because it's repeated throughout, is that Nehemiah tells no one. Now, when he says no one, we need to think a little bit about this. Obviously, he did have a military escort with him, and he did bring a whole lot of timber to rebuild those gates. Uh, and you'd imagine that if you've got a military ex, uh, escort and all that stuff with you, um, people would actually notice your arrival. Yet, yeah, But when we read the text we see this point over and over again that he is at pains not to be noticed. He goes out at night. But even when he goes out at night, even though he's not telling anyone, he takes a few people with him. What we can be assured of is that uh, he's trying to be quiet as he looks over the walls. The one fascinating thing I found uh, about the walls... um, as we go through it, is that Fountain Gate is mentioned there, and who would have thought Fountain Gate could be biblical? <laughs> Hopefully that comes up. Hmm? Lost my picture. We'll see what happens. Um, when he... Oh, that's not helpful. Um, Clearly there is a message here in him going out and doing these things because, and again, if we look through at verse uh, 16, we are reminded that he tells no one. And if we want to know the no one he, he tells, we are reminded very much so that they are the people of the Jews. And he doesn't tell the priests as well, those priests that would have been there working with um, Ezra and in the rebuilding of the temple. He doesn't even tell the upper class, the nobles that were there. He doesn't tell the officials and he doesn't even tell those who would be working with him. So as I say, clearly there is a message. Despite all those things that have gone for him, that would be the gracious hand of God being with him, the answering of his prayers, that he had the king's approval, that he had letters from the king, that he had some of the king's troops and he had timber from the kingdom. He, as yet, did not believe it was right to share the burden that the Lord had placed on his heart with others. All of this happens uh, to change in our text as he goes into verse 17. Here we get the story moving from an individual burden that is on the heart of Nehemiah to a shared community vision of restoration. We are not told how, but somehow the people are gathered together. You could imagine in that time the only place where that would happen was somewhere around the temple. And he gives them a message. What sort of message does he give the people? Well, he shares a story of how he received this word from his brother and the burden that the Lord had placed on his heart of his prayer, a story of how the Lord had provided for him, a story about how the hand of Yahweh it meant that he had letters from the king, safe travels, timber, and that military escort that we talked about before. And how he has examined the walls and the people are to be glad. But if we look through the message that is there, we do notice that in the retelling of a story that he has there are distinct words that are mentioned a few times. Last week, our brother Jerome shared with us from chapter 1 that the people were in disgrace and the wall of Jerusalem were broken down and his gates have been burned with fire. And here, there seems to be a a reversal that is happening because we get the gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us build the wall and then we know that this disgrace will be lifted. Now, if we think carefully about what is going on, we know that Nehemiah was the cupbearer. Regularly, he was in the presence of kings. So, regularly, he was in the king's presence. Regularly, he would have been there as ambassadors or people came from other countries. To talk to the king, or the people within the province came and talked about the problems that they faced. And he would have heard solutions, wisdom. Clearly, this is someone who knows how to engage in the world of the royals and has learnt how to speak. So you could imagine the people who were in this context, who had been there for 100 or plus 100 years with these walls that were down. They've got this guy coming in. And I, if you think about it, these times when we are in the negative place, when the walls are down, is when we turn inwardly. We don't know what to do. We have turmoil turmoil, and we complain. If you think about such things, um, we can think of the election that was earlier this year. How before the election we had one side of politics, the Australian Labor Party, who were very prominent. The media seemed to be behind them. The coalition was in disarray. There was always complaints. The leadership weren't working and there was a new message coming and a new time. And then we had that election, the unwinnable or the unlosable election. And on the other side of that, you get the ALP saying, oh, what's gone wrong here? And they start blaming each other for the message and we turn inwardly at those times. So here we have a man who comes with, in this context, where there's people who have literally been ruled for a long period of time. And having worked with politicians, I know what they say. I've had it said to me. One day in power is better than 1,000 days in opposition. You don't become a political leader to spend your time in opposition. And here are the Jewish people in opposition. So this diplomat comes along. Someone who has the ability to rally the people and to cause them to believe. It's a strange mixture and it shows you what God can do for us. Because I don't know many building surveyors who have spent time as cupbearers at the king's court. But this is what he becomes. And it shows us that the Lord uses us for his purposes. Now, if we move beyond this and we start, well, before we do that, before we do that, we should probably go and have a look at these guys who are supposedly in opposition. We know that in 586, the walls came down. And the people are downtrodden. And in the, in the verses that just directly precede this passage today, we hear of these guys, Sambalat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite. This time they are joined by Geshem the Arab. Who are these people who oppose? Both Samballat and Tobiah were well connected with the people of Jerusalem. When we go through Nehemiah, when we get to chapter 13, we'll find the following, that they both are related to the priestly families. Zambalat, who may have been a governor in Samaria at that time, was connected through the marriage of one of his children to the priestly class. Tobiah, whose name is actually a Jewish name that means Yahweh is good, we are told is also related to one of the priests and somehow has a chamber where he's able to store his household belongings for his own purposes. So, they may be enemies, but they're almost enemies from within. These people were benefiting from the plight of the Jews, from their being downtrodden. And you can understand that the strengthening may be an issue. In Nehemiah's response, we're reminded that this is God's endeavour. He says, the God of heaven will give us success. He will prevail and his people will join together and follow him. So what does this mean or what does this have to do with Scripture in general? In many respects, the story of rebuilding, of renewal, is very much the story that we get across Scripture. We get the cyclical pattern in the Old Testament, through the judges, through the raising of men and women to lead. I think of Moses. But Surely it's also a message about Jesus as well. Nehemiah, we're told throughout the book, is a prayerful man, as we know, that the Son of the Lord is. Nehemiah, for some reason, needs to be quiet until the time is right. And there's many times with Jesus... Where he heals and he says, Go and tell no one. But if there is uh, one very similar message that I'd like to mention, that I'd like to talk about, it does relate to our Monday night Bible studies. Last week we had a look at this great banquet that is uh, mentioned in Luke 14. In this, Jesus tells a story about not offering a banquet that can be reciprocated. That means a banquet where you offer one in in the knowledge that someone else is going to do the same for you. But he tells them to go and bring in the people who cannot do what you do. He's breaking their social customs. And he's saying, how much will you break in order to follow me? And after this, we get the following words. Large, large crowds were travelling with Jesus and turning to them he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father, mother, wife, child and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. And we know the story of Nehemiah is the one where he gives up. He gives up his position. He gives up his safety. He wants to... Follow what the Lord has placed in his heart. And we get that message as well. What are we willing to give up if we want to follow the Lord? So what does this message mean for us today? Firstly, one thing that we need to constantly remind ourselves of is that God is faithful to his promises. The story of Nehemiah is a story of him continuing to do what he says he will do. In Nehemiah's prayer, he recalls God's promises to his people to restore them if they are faithful to him and obey his commands. Chapter 2 is simply the outworking of God's purposes through a person and then through a people. Secondly, in this little section of Nehemiah, we're reminded that while God places things on our hearts individually, a vision for a fuller relationship with him, we need to be intentional in acting upon this. Nehemiah was a man of prayer, but he also acknowledges that God is acting in his life. He doesn't sit back. Rather, he has a re- he has a role in the rebuilding. It's including that sacrifice of position. It includes the careful assessment of what needed to be done. The getting of supplies, the getting of people to follow. The right words at the right time. Currently in this church, St Mark's, our senior minister Andrew and the broader ministry team is placing before us a message that the Lord has placed on Andrew's heart. It's a message of transformation. An invitation, if you like, to dwell on and practise the presence of God Sunday mornings and throughout the rest of our week we're being asked to consider what it means to follow Christ. But then not just to do that, but how are we going to live so that others know that we follow Christ? What does it look like that we are his disciples? The question for us is, is this a vision for Andrew? Or is it a vision that we're going to share in together? In rebuilding? And thirdly and finally... I do wonder if this passage reminds all of us who are downtrodden, who have had our walls broken, who are vulnerable, who have perhaps intermarried our beliefs on what it means to follow the Lord with contemporary beliefs in in our culture, such as secularism, materialism. Are we going to accept the invitation to allow that Holy Spirit to come and work in our hearts? as we look to follow him. I certainly pray that God's spirit will dwell in us, that we will be people of transformation. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the many pictures, images that we get of people called in really weird ways to follow you. Nehemiah's circumstance in being in a royal court and then going to build walls seems odd. But he was willing to give up his position to be an instrument of transformation for you. Lord, help us to understand what it means to be people who follow you with all of our heart, all of our minds, all of our souls. That we would be people who are transformed inwardly through your spirit. And outwardly, we would see that in our own lives. And we'd be a witness to that in the lives of our brothers and sisters in this community. In Jesus' name, Amen.